We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Rough Cut on January 19th, 1980. It was written by Larry Gelbert, credited as Francis Burns, based on a novel by Derek Lambert, directed by Don Siegel, with uncredited direction from Peter Hunt and Robert Ellis Miller, and released by Paramount Pictures. It's a complicated one. Um, I also should work into the intro somehow that we're going to spoil every movie. I thought maybe that was worth mentioning. Sure. We're going to spoil it. I'll, that'll be fit into Blues Brothers better than it was here. The story of this film coming together was quite confusing, so I will try to outline it as cleanly as I can. In 1975, British Wait, novelist... The story of it coming together was quite confusing, or the story itself the st- is quite confusing? It's, yeah. a, it's a double. Yes. This is okay. one of those things where I was like, I think I got this movie pretty down about halfway through, and then I looked up some information. It's like, oh, they reshot the ending four times? Maybe I don't know where this movie is going. <laughs> <laughs> um, we start in 1975. British novelist Derek Lambert wrote Touch the Lion's Paw, a crime thriller revolving around a diamond heist in Amsterdam. Within two years of being published, Burt Reynolds was attached to star in a film adaptation with Blake Edwards slated to direct. I would have liked to have seen that movie. Yeah, it might have been neat. Producer David Merrick asked screenwriter Larry Gelbert to put a script together using the novel and an early draft of a screenplay from an unidentified writer. Mere days later, Gelbert learned that he had been released from the project and replaced by a writing team. Burt Reynolds had it written into his contract that he had final say on screenwriter and director and rehired Gelbert, who spent a year meeting with Edwards in private to develop the script further. When he finally turned it into producer Merrick, he was fired a second time from the film. (laughs) By now, Burt Reynolds had traded his approval of writer and director for a later start date because he was trying to finish a different movie. A year later, the project was still trapped in development hell, so Edwards had to step away to helm the latest Pink Panther installment, Revenge Of, and Don Siegel was brought in in his place. Gelbert was brought back on and did three full rewrites with Bert and Don on a story that by now had gone through four or five screenwriters. Shooting started very quickly once the last draft was in place, And almost immediately, director Don Siegel was fired from the production and replaced with Peter Hunt. Not clear why. I'm pretty sure that Don Siegel was in the credits, though, so he must have been... Okay, Wait for it. All right, sorry, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Blake Edwards poked his head back in and offered to rewrite Gilbert's draft, apparently still unhappy with the direction of the project. And Merrick asked him to consider returning to the director's chair, but it was a hard pass from Edwards. (laughs) Reynolds preferred Siegel to direct, but was rendered powerless because he had traded away all of his options to start later so he could finish shooting the movie Starting Over, which was released in 79. Frustrated by the constantly fluctuating crew, producer Merrick rejected Edwards' offer to rewrite the script, fired the new director Peter Hunt, rehired Don Siegel, and contracted English playwright and novelist Anthony Schaefer to do any rewrites needed as Gilbert was committed to Stanley Donnan's movie movie during the production. Usually the screenwriter is available to make adjustments, but he was going to be doing the movie movie with someone else. 
What the hell is the movie movie? It's a movie about filmmaking. Oh, it's a I could have guessed that, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> From the director of Saturn 3, uh, just prior to that. So this other guy was brought on to write the script, and Schaefer went on to completely change the entire second half of the film to the point that Gelbert petitioned the WGA to have his name removed from the story. Ultimately, the decision was made by the WGA that most of the story was Gelbert's, and he would retain sole screenwriting credit, which he accepted under the pseudonym Francis Burns, a character from the MASH series that Gelbert had spearheaded adapting to television. Wow. <laughs> so the credited screenwriter here is the Robert Duvall character, from the TV show. Wonderful. Is that uh, Robert Duvall wasn't on the TV show, but the same character from the movie in the show. Is that the the end of the drama here? No. Okay. <laughs> Early on, the title went from Touch the Lion's Paw to Jack of Diamonds, which it should have been. Yes. To Diamond Cut Diamond, which is what? the worst option. A rough Cut is better than Diamond Cut Diamond, and Rough Cut is terrible. Eventually, they landed on this, though. And even though the first public screening went really well, Reynolds felt that they needed to shoot a new ending. So Gelbert wrote one free of charge, and producer Merrick was against any changes at this point, but director Siegel had final cut in his contract, and he agreed with Reynolds. So they pushed for reshoots, and this pushed the release date back several months. Despite insisting on the extra scenes, Siegel was not around to shoot them, so directing duties fell to the uncredited director Robert Ellis Miller, and when all was said and done, Merrick sued Siegel for going over schedule and not complying with the producer's vision. Another suit was also filed by David Niven against producer Merrick and Paramount because the advertising campaign made his role look less prestigious than he was known for at the time, which hurt his potential paychecks in the future. That case was settled out of court for an undisclosed six-figure sum. A third suit was fired by interim director Peter Hunt, whose contract entitled him to his full rate despite only directing about a a week of the film, and he was paid out completely $134,000 in damages. Wow. This movie is super expensive at this point. Yeah, already way over budget. And uh, Jacqueline Bissett was the first choice to play Jillian, but she turned it down to do Bloodline in 79. Now we can talk about the movie. Wow. Well, I'm starting to understand why this movie was a little crazy and I was having difficulty at the end making sense of why anything happened. But yeah, it, was it was probably like remnants all over the place of a dozen different drafts. Yeah, that whole last <laughs> scene was just tacked on completely unrelated to the rest of the, the film. A whole so. bunch of the scenes were just tacked right in there. Yeah. We start with a hot air balloon being inflated in the lawn of a mansion. That, that'll wake you up. Yes. Because I'm like, I hate movies that don't have a lot of audio in the beginning. So I'm turning up the volume. Like, is am I supposed to be hearing something at this point? Like, flame sound. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. This is a celebration of an anniversary. The first anniversary of an old man and a young woman outside of this home. We get titles with character names over people turning to face camera like this is a goddamn sitcom. Burt Reynolds and Leslie Ann Down notice each other across the crowd, and a title explains that the score was adapted by composer Nelson Riddle from the music of Duke Ellington, which is interesting. Um, I think it makes the movie feel older than it is. Which There's a I, lot of I, things that make this movie feel it older. It does yes. feel really old. It also oftentimes feels very TV-y. 
Yes. TBE. Mm-hmm. Um, Not only because I think we were watching a uh, 4-3 aspect resolution. Well, yeah, the 4-3 doesn't help anything, but the the music cues felt very overly dramatic, yeah. like a television show of the time. But I didn't hate the music. It just felt out of place occasionally. Right, and I think that a lot of the scenes felt really um, almost like like filler scenes, like you do in a long episodic type of thing. Yeah, Reynolds has always been a Cary Grant fan and wanted to do this movie to get out of boots and denim and cowboy hats for a change. He stops a woman on her way into the party and hits on her with a bizarre Cary Grant impression. Hello. Well, you lead one a very merry chase, very merry indeed. You can't be serious. I've never been more serious in my life. Which she mistakes for a Tony Curtis impression. A forgivable mistake, I would say. Well, Tony Curtis doing Cary Grant. That's what that's what she accuses him of being after she thinks he was just Tony Curtis. It was so off-putting to me, though. Yeah. I really was disturbed by this. And maybe it's just because it's so different than how Burt Reynolds sounds normally. But... I, I didn't realize what he was trying to do at first. And I'm like, oh, God, stop that. That's not how he's talking in this movie. Please yeah. don't talk like that in this movie. <laughs> I really wanted him to be in this weird <laughs> Cary Grant voice the whole time. But that didn't happen. She tells him that he should maybe change his pickup line impressions. And he says he does an excellent Jack Rhodes. And she says, who's that? And he says, me. And she's impressed with his wit. She's definitely trying to channel Audrey Hepburn. It's this scene at least and maybe the whole movie. This whole movie feels like a poor version of something like How to Steal a Million or Charade. Charades. Yeah, it yeah, definitely has charade. a lot yeah. of hints of charade. It definitely is trying to be an old, you know, 50s heist movie. And it's just, it's definitely not. No, I don't think it pulls it off. She introduces herself as Jillian Bromley, which he says is one of his favorite names because it sounds like it comes after a billion which I thought was kind of funny. Jack tries to introduce her to the happy couple throwing the party, but she has disappeared. Other guests peg him as an American and ask how long he's been here, and he lives here, so he doesn't divulge any further than that. But it's interesting to have an American character that lives in England Mm -hmm. for the character. There's two kinds of heist movies. There's the heist movies that make the whole plot work, and there's the, the ones that just get really confusing and screw it up. This is one this of those. One, this one is <laughs> yeah. part of the latter category. He follows Jillian upstairs, and he ends up scaling the outside of the building to try and catch her stealing diamonds from a very poorly disguised false bottom of a homeowner's underwear yeah. drawer. Yeah, this drawer is like one inch deep. Yeah, I called it immediately. I was like, oh, false bottom here, because it's more than half of the drawer is the false bottom, which it's just supposed to be like a centimeter at mm-hmm. the bottom. She's digging through the homeowner's underwear drawer, and she finds this black box full of diamonds, which she loads into a cigarette case. On the way, we have this fun mix of acrobatic stunt double and actual Burt Reynolds stunts, which uh, he was pretty famous for wanting to do a lot of his own stunts himself. But someone knocks on the door here to interrupt the theft, uh, trying to use the bathroom that's attached to this bedroom, and she sort of retreats, puts all of her stuff away, and... Jack jumps down from the second floor swinging around a flagpole. And this is all in one shot, so this is actually Burt Reynolds jumping from the second floor and swinging around this pole three times on the way down, which is neat. I always appreciate it when an actor does 
some of that stuff themselves. He catches Jillian on her way out with his Clark Gable impression now. And she says she's leaving because she doesn't like large parties. So he suggests they could go to a smaller one or be a smaller one. And when she refuses, he offers her a cigarette from the case that she put the stones in, I think. Yeah. So I had to back this up like four times. I I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to be looking at. (laughs) Yeah. Because he he opens the case. But it's at a completely different angle than we saw it earlier. So it's not clear that it's the same cigarette case. And and I see cigarettes in it and a mirror and, and he's he, like bouncing light into her eyes yeah and and i was like am i supposed to be seeing something i i don't know what is here that i'm supposed to be seeing i think they used the same prop and we were supposed to recognize it but because we're seeing it from a completely different angle and it has totally different contents that it's not clear that it's the same cigarette case to us but the implication is that he's flashing her a cigarette case that's now missing the diamonds, I presume? Yes. It's a cigarette case that somehow, from the stairs to here, he managed to get off of her and, and fill empty. with cigarettes. Yeah. And so she's immediately disheartened because she knows she's been caught and that this guy's much faster than she thought. She leaves disappointed and empty-handed. And he goes home with, I think, the wife whose anniversary it was? Uh, Sheila. Is that is that the woman who was celebrating her one year anniversary um, with her husband? Um, I don't know, but she was following him around the party. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the case. But uh, inside the apartment, she rips open his shirt, and they lay together on his bed. When he hears a sound upstairs, <laughs> he says, "Hold," and you see her arm move. I mean, don't move. <laughs> like she just grabbed him <laughs> when he said, "Hold it." She is incredibly intoxicated in yes. this scene so like to the point where she's like falling over and uh you know dragging along the floor with him as he's trying to you know enter his uh, yeah. apartment and and we don't we don't get one of those wonderful austin powers moments where he's like you know we kind it's of not do cool baby we do a little bit get that moment so upstairs he finds jillian hiding in the closet and he locks her in so that he can go downstairs and dismiss his lady friend. As he's letting her down, she does say, I had too much to drink, didn't I? You don't like that, I know. Like he's notorious for turning women away for drinking, which I think is an attempt to rescue his reputation from having drug her back to his apartment. But he clearly brought her here for this reason, and the only reason he's kicking her out now is because Jillian's upstairs. That's what what I'm saying. I agree. Is if Jillian wasn't there, this is not how this scene would have gone. I agree, 100%. But he's trying to let her down as easy as he can. He's feigning that a military injury that left him ill-equipped to perform. And she says, I can help you. Let me try. And he says, No, no, no. It wouldn't be any good. You see, I, uh, I have to strap things on. Besides, all my batteries are dead. Be a mess. It's <laughs> just disgusting. It's <laughs> a, a wonderful way to excuse yourself. from. He's, uh, the- he's just trying to turn her off as much as possible here. <laughs> But so she leaves and he goes upstairs to release Jillian, who was here trying to retrieve the diamonds that she thought he brought home. But it turns out he just put them back in the false bottom of the drawer back at the mansion. So he doesn't even have them here because he didn't want them. He asks what her deal is and she says that she takes things because it excites her. She's basically just a kleptomaniac. On her way out, they make a lunch date the following day. And he says, do you want something good or something expensive? And she says, both. At home, we see Jillian call someone. We learn later that this man is the chief inspector, and he's currently in bed with his wife because it's very late at night. 
the chief inspector is being played by David Niven. And his wife in bed remarks that whoever called so late sounded beautiful. She says she was dreaming about being on a vacation in the south of France. And Niven says... Lovely, was it? Not really. It's pissing down rain. So it wasn't even a nice dream. And then she tells him, Oh, did you read that article that said if you don't use it, you'll lose it? Because she doesn't just want to be sleeping next to him. I'm a little confused about their relationship. I mean, are we trying to establish at this point that there's marital problems already? I don't think that there were near marital problems. I think that it, she they, they seem to be having like a very nice kind of banter. Yeah, I think this was just a typical argument between the two of them. Because it, seem, it seems like she's dissatisfied. Like, oh, you're talking to a beautiful woman and you have no interest in me. Yeah, I think that was just... That was just her making conversation and being funny and picking on him for answering this call in the middle of the night. Okay. I don't think it was necessarily like a sign of a deeper problem they're having. Yeah. I thought we were trying to set something up because of... What happens later? What happens later. If it was, it was a very slight like first step towards that. Well, I would say only step. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we see her again until the end. We see her a couple times. Okay. But that's definitely like it definitely comes out of nowhere later. Um, probably because it was a completely a tacked, tacked on. on ending. <laughs> Jillian meets with Niven at his office the next day. He asks how it went with Rhodes. Jillian tells uh, David Niven's character that everything went according to plan, that Rhodes found her at the party and introduced himself, and she says, we're going out again soon. But she says, how do you know that he'll want to see me again? And I liked his response here. He says, modesty is boring. Like, come on you know that you're hot like he's gonna keep asking you out you don't have to pretend that you don't think he's gonna do that he explains in sort of a monologue moment that he's always been very close to catching jack rhodes but this is his chance to catch him before he retires because he's basically being forced out of the job because of his age Mm -hmm. which uh is illegal in america but i don't know england rules can't just fire somebody for also 1980 yeah maybe maybe ageism wasn't a thing then or a protected class but it turns out through this conversation, we learn that he is blackmailing her to catch Jack. She claims that they're tightening the screws on her, and defensively he says, Turning the screws? Has anybody yet told your father that his daughter's light finger proclivities might jeopardize his position in the government? Which is exactly what tightening the screws means. Like, we're threatening you, so do what we say. But he says, Haven't I kept mum about your long string of discretions? And this is when she leaves because there's no more productive conversation to be had. Later, she gets in a car with Jack, and she pushes the pedal to the metal from the passenger seat? Oh, no, she's driving. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also in England. Right. Um, I was very upset by the, like, antiquated rear projection driving scenes. Yeah. I was like... Hey, this... they're trying to be like the old heist movies. Yeah. Do you, you think know, it was homage or 60s? do you think it was budgetary? No, I think it was budgetary. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm just trying to I mean, be funny. Actually, is... we have some in the next movie too. <laughs> yeah, but those look great. Yeah, but you could tell it's rear projection. They which rewrote means it's this movie like a hundred times. Yeah. And a bunch of people got fired off it and still got paid. But, so. but it's also, you know, <laughs> how hard is it to just tow a car with a, with another car. <laughs> yeah, it really can't be that complicated. Because this is after Smokey and the Bandit. Yes. Which had plenty of real Burt Reynolds driving scenes. Yeah. Um, There's no reason they couldn't have been towing this car. Yeah. But they aren't. So maybe it was homage. Yeah. Uh, she seems to be going too fast for Rhodes' taste because he asks, Are we anywhere near the end of the runway yet? And she laughs. 
I do like this establishment of her as a good driver or skilled driver. Good driver? That's what you took away from this? She's a skilled driver. She's she's not being she's not being reckless. Only in that she's driving way above the speed limit and doesn't have a license. Yeah, but I think I I feel like she's a capable driver. I feel like you're saying that because if this was a man doing that, (laughs) I'm just saying if this was a man doing that, you'd be like, you know, Fast and the Furious. Oh my God, he's so amazing. Well, yeah, that's different. They have penises. No, I, I, I like the establishment of her as a skilled yes, driver. I agree that she is a very skilled driver. I don't think that that she's a especially safe driver. I think she's on purpose trying to scare him a little bit with her driving. Yeah, with her skills. Yes, she's got mad driving skills. She catches the eye of a local speed trap. Bert leans over to her as they're coming head-on against an 18-wheeler, and he says, Excuse me for mentioning it, but we're about to become a hood ornament for a truck. I don't think so. And at the very last second, she just swerves around it, and he, like, kind of jostles himself like he looks, like, shook up about it, and she she's amused by this. They are trying to get away from the police, so she skids around all these trucks and pulls up behind a dump truck in this off-the-road parking lot. And he gets out of the car and he walks around and empties the dump truck into the convertible. Well, we, we established during right. the driving scene that this is a stolen car. Yes, I forgot fact. to mention that. <laughs> so she has stolen this car because that's what she does. She steals things and he fills it with trash. Was it trash? It looked like it was wool. It looked like shredded clothing. Yeah. Oh, was that what it was? Interesting. Because they go from the scene and they start walking away and then all of a sudden they're in the city. Mm-hmm. I was like, did they spend like the last two hours walking? Yeah. Like, how did they get here? They're also in the backseat of a car, which I was like, did they steal another car? Like, what is going on? But it turns out that they're drinking wine in the back of a taxi or a cab or a, I don't know what you call them in Britain. What is the, is there a different word for them there? No, it's actually taxi like everywhere. It's one of those universal words. Oh, interesting. Uh, good to know. Fact checking that. <laughs> <laughs> Jack carries her to the door but she tells the cabbie to wait which implies that she doesn't intend for him to stay the night because he's going to need a ride home right away uh she explains the door that she sleeps nude but doesn't invite him in because he keeps asking oh well what do you sleep in do you sleep in this do you sleep in that she's like nope 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 but they kiss here and after the door closes he takes the key out of the door and then she opens the door again realizing that she left the key in the door and he invites her on a second date what follows is a string of him inviting her on dates while they're on dates. Yeah. It's not necessary, and there at was, least two of them could have been pulled very easily. Yeah, there was so much of this, and it was so unnecessary. This this made it feel like a TV show to yes. me. Yes. So the next day they're at a cafe, and she orders a bunch of desserts. That's the end of that scene. Then we cut to them at a casino where she's winning at Blackjack, I guess to show that she's good at cards. It doesn't play into anything later. Back at Scotland Yard, the chief inspector, Willis, that's the David Niven character, he is practicing putting in his office. He speaks on the phone with Jillian. She lets him know that they have another date planned, and he suggests that they move on to the next phase of their scheme. That night, Jack walks her through the kitchen of a Chinese restaurant that he owns, and she's not able to get any information out of him about his family, but he keeps prying her for more information. She admits that her father is very high up in the government, but that her mom has passed away. 
And while they're sitting at dinner, they plan for their dinner the next day at Laze, they call the place. On her way out of the car, she tells Jack a big story about an ex that has connections to a diamond dealer, which he's not buying from second one. You can tell from his face that he doesn't believe anything she's saying. And it came so completely out of nowhere that he's like, oh, that's why you've been going out with me. You're scamming me for something. But she says, oh, I have an ex and... He has connections to this diamond dealer in Amsterdam, and he always wants to have sex with me right before they do a big shipment. And he's like, okay. And she's like, he called me, and he wants me to come see him, but I'm not going to sleep with him. I'm just going to go see him. And he's like, okay, great. I don't care about any of this, because he knows that she's making it up. She mentions that uh, her ex, Mr. Levy, always calls her the night before a big shipment, and he doesn't seem to care at all. Willis makes a surprise visit to Jillian's home. She seems certain that he doesn't care about the diamonds. For some reason, Jack has convinced her that he's not into money and he doesn't admit to being any kind of a thief to her. Willis points out that his specialty is actually fencing, not necessarily the stealing of the things. That What makes him special is that he's able to sell them later. He's able to find a market for these stolen goods. Because most thieves, when they steal something... They sell it for way less than it's worth because they don't know what it's worth and they don't know the right channels to go to. Here, Jillian tries to wiggle out from under his thumb because she thinks she's basically done enough for him, but he tells her that he's going to give her the official shipment date of these diamonds and she's going to give that information to Jack and he's totally going to fall for it. She reminds him that blackmail is illegal and she can't keep threatening to tell her dad about stuff and he says, Policemen are constantly breaking the law. It's one of the many ways we have of upholding it. Jack calls Jillian that night. She is naked, uh, in keeping with what she suggested was her, her usual routine. It sounds like he just blatantly skipped a date with her. Like he yeah. just no-showed to a date. But she's not upset about it at all. Uh, he blames missing the date on having had phone sex with a different girl because she calls him the night before she races her greyhound because he's just making fun of what she said about the diamond dealer boyfriend. And then he does this really uncomfortable voice, and he says, I talked dirty to her on the telephone. <laughs> and you were very oh creeped out by it. Oh, my God. I was so disturbed by this. And then we backed it up and listened to it like again like three more times. Because I wanted to get the words right. So creepy every yeah. time. <laughs> oh, my God. Sends shivers down your spine. Yeah. So he asks her out tomorrow, and she agrees. No problem. That's cool that you skipped out on me, and we'll do it again tomorrow. But then after he hangs up with her, he dials another number. And we don't know who this is yet, but we're about to find out. The next day, they're at Wimbledon, and they're sitting watching the game. But almost as soon as it starts, they get up to walk away because there's this courtside area where you can have food and watch the games from, like, a table while you're eating because he thinks she's bored by the game. It's called a snack bar. Sure. <laughs> uh, so they go there to get strawberries and champagne. And while they're sitting there, a pair of gentlemen visit their table. One of them introduces himself as Mr. Levy and he has to introduce himself to her implying that she doesn't know Mr. Levy so he's basically caught her in a lie he's confirming this his suspicion that they have never met and they ask if he'd like to join them and Jack says oh I'll catch up with you guys in a minute I just have to pay the tab here but you go along with them she follows these two men away and then Jack catches up in a minute while they're leaving in the car on the way home they're talking about Maxwell Levy, and Jack says, I hear he's very attractive, and Julian says, What? I said, I see why women find him attractive. 
No, you said you hear. What do you mean you hear? You just met him. And Jack says, no, you just met him. I met a failed actor friend of mine posing as him because he hired someone to pretend to be Mr. Levy because he knew she wouldn't recognize that it wasn't Mr. Levy. I'm really curious what happened between these two scenes. Like, she goes off with this actor and he catches up with them a minute. Like, what happened that whole time? They must have had a whole (laughs) fake conversation after that. I mean, it's totally unnecessary to the movie, but I'm just curious. Yeah. And then he has a weird line here. He says that... So to convince him to play this prank on her, he says, 50 pounds and the use of my body after I'm dead. Which is like, we're establishing that this character actor is a necrophiliac for almost no reason. Well, and that they're actually a gay couple. Um, the, no children, though they've tried very hard. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great line. Maybe he's not a necrophiliac. Maybe he's more like a Frankenstein guy. They're bodybuilders, if you will. Yes. She basically fesses up to him the whole plan. She tells him everything that Willis is trying to do, and she asks what she can do now because now he knows that she's being blackmailed by Willis and he wants to catch him. And he says, well, you tell Willis that the plan failed and then you go to jail. That's the end of this conversation. And he takes her home and he asks why she wouldn't sleep with him if she was faking the whole time. And she basically says that she had too much self-respect, essentially. I feel like at this point, though, she should know that he has known the whole time because he's not that angry. He basically tells her that, that he knew from the second she brought up the story about Levy that she was making it up. But this is really weird because she says that she wasn't going to do it, even though Willis had suggested that she take him to bed. And he says, then you laid down on the job or rather you didn't. And suddenly she's like, "Okay, come in and let's have sex. And they go inside and have sex. Yeah, well, do they, do they have sex, though? Yes. I, I I feel like the joke of this long pan showing all their clothes and strewn about the room was just to show that they actually just got in a bathtub together. I don't know. I thought the implication was that they did have sex. Yeah, I think it was. Okay. I'm with, I'm with Patrick. But they're panning across all these clothes, uh, increasingly private clothes on the way to a bathtub, full of bubbles and people and uh <laughs> oh god well, no just the two that were supposed to be right in there. that's full it's just, it's not a huge tub it's, it's at least 20 percent full of people yes <laughs> okay <laughs> how do you measure bathtub percentages volume volume <laughs> displacement of the water <laughs> yeah so this the, all makes the sense. draft of their bodies if you will <laughs> yes they plan to outsmart willis together jack jokes no i didn't think of asking scotland yard but that's his new plan is that he's literally going to get this date from Willis and he's going to screw Willis over with it. Because this is a thing that he's known about for years. He's known that there's this diamond shipment. And he's never bothered to go for it because he can't get the information. I guess. I, I guess that's the implication of that line. But I didn't realize that until you said it. I like when he asks her to call Willis and, and she goes, why am I going to call Willis? I was like, why are you whispering? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't dialed anything yet. Why are you whispering? But she tries to call him and then she doesn't get through, which seems like a pointless Yeah, I, I was like, what is happening? Moment. I don't know. There's a lot it, of those. It in didn't this have movie. to happen. At Scotland Yard, she is there the next day and tells Willis that Jack brought up Levy on his own and she refuses to participate any further, but she's baiting him into the rest of this conversation. And Willis threatens her with a list of notoriously awful women's prisons where she will be shaved, fed garbage, and eventually raped. This is all part of his plan. He's excited about these things that will happen to her. She pretends to reluctantly ask for the date, and Willis says she'll get it when she gets it. 
at this point she kind of breaks character and is very frustrated that he won't give her the date because that's really all she wanted and the only reason that she came to see him but he knows that i mean in the long run based on what happens in this movie he knows that that's why she's there and why why is he giving them the real date yeah shouldn't shouldn't any date work and then you just if he shows up not if you, you know the whole him. rest of the movie you can't do that though. you have he to, give has them to the actually try to commit the crime though well yeah but you could set up a fake crime and that he you're forgetting the final scene <laughs> at jack's place he and a friend nigel lawton look at maps of antwerp deliveries jillian arrives and lawton seems uncomfortable with a third partner on this mission Jack asks him to prepare some passports for them and for someone who knows Amsterdam because he needs a driver. Jack pulls up to a Nazi airport just littered with swastikas. I'm very confused at this moment in the film. He receives a call from Jillian with the official date of the delivery. Maybe maybe we're wrong. Maybe this movie was supposed to take place in 1950. No, it's not. <laughs> Jack here on the phone with Jillian tells her to meet him in Paris tonight at some hotel, some fancy hotel, and she's very excited to be globetrotting with the Diamond Thief. Jack speaks with this Nazi character and tells him to be in London tomorrow. He is a Nazi, right? Yeah. Maybe this is the 50s. I don't know if this is just a a fan of the Nazis or, I mean... Does when does Blues Brothers take place? (laughs) Why are there so many prominent Nazis in all these movies? Well, Blues Brothers definitely takes place in 1980. Yes. But but there's oh, there's many Nazis in that film as well. But we'll get there next time. Jack enters the Moulin Rouge with Jillian. There's lots of black and white striped shirts, which made us think, like, is this whole thing staffed with mimes at first? Or is this just, like, <laughs> French stereotypes all over the place? trying to drive home that we're in Paris here. Yeah. They speak with Bob at the piano about the plan. And he seems to know everyone that's involved, except for this Nazi character, Ernst. And he says, do I know him? And he says, were you in the German army? And he says, <laughs> I flunked the color test. <laughs> because this is an African-American character. No, well, uh, or an African-Parisian character? African. I thought he was an American. I think, I think, I think he's, he's American, American. But All right. He's an American he's, in he's Paris. He's American in Paris. There you go. They head to Amsterdam and they're walking through the red light district. And they're here to speak with a driver. They actually enter one of the red light buildings. The guy comes out and they say, hey, I am Jack Rhodes. And he's like immediately flattered and interested by mm-hmm. learning who this person is. He's a famous diamond thief. Well, what is what is the male term for a madam of a whorehouse? Uh, sir. Is it, I don't know. A pimp? <laughs> I mean, is, is like, is that like then is a madam just a pimp? Is that Yeah, is that... basically. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody out there. I can a woman be up. a pimp is the question. Well, I, don't, I, feel I would like, say a man cannot be a I feel like the difference between a pimp and a madam is how they treat their It depends employees. on the pimp. Mm-hmm. There are very supportive pimps. Yeah. And I'm not going to point to Hustle and Flow because that was actually a very abusive situation. And people pretend like he's a pimp with a heart of gold. And he threw one out when she was pregnant in the middle of the movie. But some pimps are nice. Will Ferrell as Gator and the other guys. There you go. Was a good guy. As they're interviewing this guy to be their driver potentially for the diamond thieving, he says, Do you need anything else? Like making people disappear. Either temporarily or permanently. I can do both tricks. You do that a lot, I bet. I like it. 
and he makes this super <laughs> creepy face. I had to back it up because it's so incredible. But uh, Jack is very turned off by this guy's passion for murder and terrorism. I think we all are. Yeah. yeah. And he decides immediately that this guy is not the driver for them. So uh, a quick fight ensues because he doesn't even want to let Jack Rhodes leave. But uh, fight is a strong word because Jack just knocks the guy over. And we never see this character again. I thought he was going to like come back and it was going to yeah. be an issue, but he never does. Willis sits down to breakfast with his wife and she asks if he saw the paper and he says no and she says oh did you catch the date and he says that made the front page again um, <laughs> but it's the 25th which means that it's only six days until you retire he gets a call from the diamond company and they've decided to move the shipment date because they received an anonymous call that a scheme is being put together and they're going to lose their diamonds if they ship them on that date willis insists that they keep the date where it is and he promises to escort the diamonds himself in the bathroom, his assistant reveals that they will keep the shipment date on the 28th. They're not going to move it to the 10th because he convinced them to keep it where it is, and he admits that he called the threat in himself so that they would beef up security, which will help him prevent the diamonds from being stolen. Which, again, if you remember what happens for the rest of the movie, you will know that it doesn't make sense for him to want the security to be beefed up. Well, mm -hmm. actually, it doesn't matter if the security is beefed up on the day of. I feel like more people is just inviting trouble, though, in general. He just wants to, like, reassure them. I guess, yeah. they are protecting themselves. That's all. Willis talks with Jillian again at her home, and he tries to weasel more info out of her, and she pretends that she's giving him all the information because she doesn't think he can catch Jack anyway. And then suddenly Jack is knocking at her door, so her and Willis are pretending that Willis is a family friend. And when he talks to Jack, he says, oh, so you're just visiting? And he says, no, I'm one of England's foul weather friends because it's always raining there. I actually laughed at that joke. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> uh, they joke about the subtext of the scene, um, how they're both, they're kind of acknowledging in the conversation that one of us is a cop and one of us is a criminal. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, they exchange business cards and Willis leaves. Jillian starts undressing Jack while he speaks with Nigel on the phone, and he says, I'm sorry, something came up as, he's, as she's lifting her shirt over her head. Nigel hands off their new passports to them, and the Nazi and keyboardist arrive via plane. They ask him when he's going to share the date of the shipment with them, and he said, I'm going to tell you the day before the caper. And they're like, you know, that's really not enough time for us to fully prepare. And he says, okay, you're right. It's tomorrow because that's the day before the caper jillian will be the driver because the amsterdam guy was super creepy um, <laughs> and he failed his interview to avoid suspicion at the airport they will dress as saudi arabians that doesn't work as well today i don't think to avoid suspicion <laughs> jack speaks with a terrible accent and as they head to the bathrooms after buying their tickets jillian calls it a bad peter sellers but he claims it was peter sellers doing an impression of omar sharif Monsieur Charmer? Yes, sir. I'm Mr. Charmer. Yes, sir. Can I help you, sir? This is your wife? This is my wife. This is my wife. Yes, sir. They step into the bathroom and trade costumes with other people because those costumes come out of the bathroom. But I don't know mm -hmm. who these two people are wearing the costumes. Yeah, I was super confused by all of this. But the agents that are trying to pursue Jack and Jillian end up following these two doubles. Willis is in a vault counting the diamonds making sure that everything is accounted for. 
We cut back to the rest of the thieving team painting a plane. Jack leads Jillian to a stolen police car in a hut off the road, and he gives her one last chance to back out. And when she doesn't, he admits that he loves her. Willis escorts the diamonds onto the road, and uh, Nigel is spying on the plane that will be receiving the diamonds for this shipment, and so he's describing it to the people painting a plane so that they can make it an exact duplicate of this plane. Yeah, so now they have a doppelganger. Putting, yeah, they're putting like the, I don't know what it's called, um, like the call letters? Yeah. Yeah, and the same stripes and everything so that it looks exactly like it. The correct plane takes off with the diamonds on board. Ernst and Bob take off in the doppelganger plane, and they're exactly replicating its movements as they take off, so they're taking off at the same time. I don't know that that's entirely necessary, but they climb right up behind it in the air, and they radio to the correct plane that they will need to divert to Amsterdam because the co-pilot here is actually a an air traffic controller, so he knows the lingo to tell them to divert to another airport. Well, I guess they had to be close enough to that plane to radio in order them. to radio them and convince them that they were the, the local air traffic control tower. That makes sense. Uh, so they tell them to divert to Amsterdam. The stolen cop car drives up to the airport and basically across the whole airfield the doppelganger plane takes the role of the correct plane and lands in antwerp as scheduled but the doppelgangers hand off these dummy bags to the waiting security teams and nobody checks no nobody the notices the african-american the plane. guy yeah. that replaced the white guy in the airplane yeah. well, they basically just throw the bags out of the plane and then, immediately and then take off again yeah so nobody checked this plane to make sure. Uh, essentially, the whoever was actually flying the 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 diamonds could have stolen them all themselves. Well, yeah, that's the weird thing is there was nobody aside from the pilots in this plane the entire time. And during the meeting where Willis told them, "Oh, there was a there was this threat on on the diamonds, but we're going to keep the same day. Just beef up the security." He says, "I'm not going to fly with them." Yeah, someone should have been with the diamonds from right, they, point they, A to point B. And they B. suggested that. And yeah. he's like, no, 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 we don't need that. I need to, I don't even remember what his excuse was. It was flimsy and bad. Yeah. Well, and and he also adding to the confusion, he, and I believe to be one of the alternate endings, he places a call to someone unseen and then hangs up. And you think it's his assistant, but then his assistant walks up. Yeah. And so, so I was like, like, oh, I okay. it was. Okay, he's in. I, that's this was my first inkling that he's completely in on this, which yeah. isn't the case. Yeah, that was what I was expecting too, and that wasn't what happened. So now the correct plane that actually had the diamonds is landing in Amsterdam, and when they are getting ready to open the plane, they see Jack and Jillian in the stolen police car, and they're like, "This is suspicious." Like immediately, this the plane is falling apart. They're recognizing that. There wouldn't be this one police car by itself and these people look like the people they've been told to look out for. So they grab a gun ready to shoot Jack as soon as they get out of the plane. But as soon as they get the door open, Jack gasses both of them. He gasses one of them. Well, yeah, he gasses one of them. But the other guy, he's like blocking the door basically. Mm -hmm. But Jack is able to grab both of the diamond bags and runs back to the police car. So a chase ensues here from the Amsterdam airport following Jack out of the out of the airfield but we've established that jillian's a great driver right on their on their way away from the airport jack and jillian are able to lose these police cars one at a time 
uh, and they're racing to get to the doppelganger plane, which is landing again to pick them up. The last police car in the chase tries desperately to catch up with them as the plane is taking off, but Jack and Jillian are able to get aboard, and he can't catch up with them before they disappear into the sky. At home, we see Willis just drinking in his living room. Yeah, if only there was some kind of method of tracking airplanes. Yeah, some kind of. There's not though. Some kind of electromagnetic. No, no, <laughs> that would never work. This plane is gone. There's no use tra- looking for it or anything. And uh, there's definitely nobody you could scramble from this airport that it yeah. just took off from to follow it if there wasn't other technology. But uh, he's just drinking at home because he lost all these diamonds and he was he retired in disgrace he gets some mail uh, which i thought was going to play into something I, I think maybe it does i after we watched the movie i was like oh that mailman didn't pay off and i was like oh maybe it did no it just gives his wife an opportunity to say that she's his ex-wife right yeah the mailman comes to the door and she and he says i have mail for the chief inspector and she says ex-chief inspector and he says sorry mrs willis and she says ex mrs willis and she walks out the door with all of her bags packed but now we cut to a yacht somewhere which I think in the mail he was getting an invitation to this yacht or being told where to meet oh, them. Oh, you think so? I don't know for sure, but that was my suspicion. Okay, yeah, I guess. But Jack and Jillian are toasting to Inspector Willis because Jillian hasn't been let in on the secret yet. But uh, Jack reaches forward and rips her necklace off and throws it into the water. This was one of the diamonds from their heist, and she's confused why he would throw it into the ocean. But it turns out the whole shipment was quartz. All the diamonds were fake, and all the diamonds that they returned in the doppelganger plane were fake because Willis took the diamonds in the first place when he was in the vault with them and he expects Jack's help in selling them and even though he earlier criticized criminals who steal things for selling them for way less than they're worth he sells 30 million dollars worth of diamonds to Jack for three million dollars well he initially says one million right and but Jack counters with three million because he's a fair yeah, he's not trying to take but advantage of him. He's promised everyone on the heist crew a tenth of it. Yeah, which if you divide thirty million ten ways, he's got a fair share now. So it because you said that that wasn't nearly enough. And well, also if you count the people involved, there's only six, right? Yeah. So okay. So here's my problem with this whole thing. At what point? Do they get together and know what is happening? Does Jack know when he f- finishes this heist that there are no diamonds in his doppelganger yes. plane? He knew beforehand. How? Why? Did, I don't. I think he was working with Willis before. Uh, I mean, based on the ending that they used, the implication is that he knew that Willis was working with Jillian before Jillian knew that they were working together. I don't think this is true. Okay. So here's my theory is that. Jack didn't know, and he went through all of this assuming that he would get diamonds at the end. And he didn't, which then led him to understand that Willis actually stole them. And he contacted Willis to say, you're going to need a fence. Maybe. And so then they got together and and decided how to deal with this. I like that ending better if that's the explanation. That, that, that was my implication as well. Of Jack says something like he wouldn't know what to do with them, so he had to contact the only person he would know who would know what to do. Well, right, I, and I don't think it happened until after the heist because I think that the only reason that we went through this whole process, because Jack wouldn't have bothered to do that yeah. if he knew that Willis had stolen them already. Because he could have gotten shot. Yeah, All sorts true. of things could have gone wrong. But I still would have liked for maybe a moment where Willis, at the end of the whole heist, 
he opens the thing and he says we're gonna have to make a phone call or I'm, I'm gonna have to talk to somebody i need to reach out to willis or something like that to make it clear that it's like there's a problem with what we got and i suddenly know what's happening but it also doesn't make sense for me then unless he's like staying in character of his like alcoholism and his wife leaving him. I think he like, wanted his wife to leave so he could just retire with the money for the diamonds. I think that is what he did. Right. But, but that's not really clear to me. Like, cause it, cause it didn't seem like they were in a loveless marriage. That's true. It, they don't, they don't seem like she's not like the typical movie nagging wife mm-hmm. character. She's just like poking fun at him and, and they're like having a battle of wits. It's yeah. not like they're, they hate each other. Like, like John Cleese and his wife in a fish called Wanda. Right. Like, there, there's clear that there's problems with this marriage. But they love each other. Well, maybe in order for him to commit a crime, though, and get all this money, he had to get rid of his wife because she wouldn't have approved. Yeah. Who knows? Anyway, this film was directed by Don Siegel. He directed Kinda. two... Yeah, sort of. <laughs> a lot of it was. Uh, he directed Two Mules for Sister Sarah, Dirty Harry, Charlie Varick, Escape Ooh, from Alcatraz. I like Charlie Varick. That's a good one. I like Dirty Harry. Sure. I haven't seen Dirty Harry. The director, Peter Hunt, who directed one week of who knows which shots, he edited the first few James Bond films and came back to direct Her Majesty's Secret Service. He also directed a movie called Hyper Sapien, People from Another Star, which is a belated E.T. ripoff starring Ricky Paul Golden, who was in MacGyver episode Final Approach what, uh, <laughs> about juvenile delinquents in the what woods. What year do we get this lovely gem? It's late 80s. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, way after the yeah. ET train. Uh, it looks like what happens when someone tries to jump on a bandwagon that rolled through town four years ago. <laughs> and then the director of just the final tacked-on scene was Robert Ellis Miller. That's the only scene that he did from this movie, but he also directed Baltimore Bullet for us earlier this year. Hmm. Uh, writer Larry Gelbert wrote Oh God, the first Oh God movie. We'll have the sequel soon. Uh, he also wrote Movie Movie and Tootsie. And oh. he wrote the screenplay for the Bedazzled remake with Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley. Uh, the novel was written by Derek Lambert. This is the only thing on his IMDb page. Burt Reynolds was Jack Rhodes. You know him from Smokey and the Bandit or Deliverance or the Cannonball movies. He's great in Boogie Nights from Paul Thomas Anderson. And he plays himself in Saints Row 3. The character is Mayor Burt Reynolds. It's basically <laughs> just a Family Guy joke yeah. with uh, with uh, Mayor uh, Adam West. Well, he, he also plays himself on Archer, right. which is great. He was uh, Archer's mother's boyfriend in an episode where they talk a lot about the movies Gator and White Lightning. Mm-hmm. The episode is called The Man from Jupiter, which I believe is a reference to the city of Jupiter, Florida, which Correct. is where he lived and passed away. Yeah, Jupiter Island. Leslie Ann Down was Jillian Bromley. She was in 777 episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful and 520 episodes of Sunset Beach. She also played Olga in The Pink Panther Strikes Again. So she may have been brought on when Blake Edwards was intending to direct. Mm. Uh, David Niven was Chief Inspector Cyril Willis. Damn it, Cyril! Anytime I hear the name Cyril, I think of that character. He played Dick Charleston in Murder by Death. He was Charles Lytton in a few Pink Panther movies, I think three, and he'll be back next year in Sea Wolves from the director of North Sea Hijack. Yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to that <laughs> the one. The cast <laughs> is incredible, and uh, I liked that director. So, um, And he also played Sir James Bond in Casino Royale, the 1967 film, Ugh. which is maybe the worst James Bond movie. Um, Timothy West was Nigel Lawton. 
He's Jeremy Lister on Gentleman Jack. I recognize him right away. Yeah. Uh, not from Gentleman Jack, which I do like that show and do now recognize him from that now that you've said that. But uh, he is in Ever After. He's, oh, he's the father? He's the king. Uh, he's the king. Uh, he's the father of the, the prince. Yeah. But, but I guess that's what kings are. Kings. Fathers of princes. King Charles, I think. Sure. Let's go with Charles. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Oh, now we're going to watch it. Patrick McGee was Ernst Mueller. He plays Mr. Alexander in uh, Clockwork Orange, which is the character who's in a wheelchair, the author who they torture and manipulate. Yeah. And he's basically playing the part of Anthony Burgess in the story. Um, he's also Lord Cadogan in Chariots of Fire. And he plays somebody in Barry Lyndon. But who remembers anyone for Barry Lyndon other than Barry Lyndon? Al Matthews was Ferguson. I forget who Ferguson was. That's uh, the, uh, the, the black guy. Oh, they were calling him Bob at the yeah. Moulin Rouge. He didn't get a first name on his IMDb credit. But he was Sergeant Apone in Aliens. Uh, he's Master Sergeant 3 in Tomorrow Never Dies. So the, I guess there's hmm. multiple Master Sergeants in that movie. But Apone is a, yeah. is a great character. And he's also the Fire Chief in Superman 3. Joss Ackland was Inspector Vanderveld, which I think is the guy who keeps busting into Willis's office. Um, no, no. The, uh, Vanderveld is the amsterdam his 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 opposite number in amsterdam oh okay who he's coordinating with because he's on international it's not it's on his jurisdiction so he's in the room when they're checking the diamonds yeah yeah um, he played andre lysenko in red october he's the main bad guy in bogus journey whose character name is denomalos mm-hmm. which <laughs> i thought was a very weird name when i read it until i realized that backwards it is ed solomon which is one of the film's writers wolf collar played well hold on we, we also uh, we also have the amazing his lethal weapon two part joss ackland yeah he's he's the the head of the south uh like south african uh diplomats oh okay and like he's the, like the famous part of like when they're on the boat and he's waving his things as diplomatic community and, <laughs> and and glover like is like just been revoked and blows him away that's amazing <laughs> uh i haven't watched the second one as often as i should that's the one with gary Busey. uh that's the first one. Oh, that was the first one yeah the, the second one is is about like the this south african uh group operating inside the u.s i feel like i've watched the first one sparingly and the fourth one a lot yeah and that's it the, the second one is when they introduced joe pesci oh okay we have wolf collar here as de Guyer or de Guyer. Yeah. He plays a lot of Nazis. Um, <laughs> he was Dietrich in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, he plays a German commander in Wonder Woman pretty recently. And he was Dr. Hoffmannstahl in Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes 2. Douglas Wilmer is the fake Maxwell Levy or Levy here. I think he's the fake one. And we never see a real Because we one. never see the real one. Uh, he played Fanning and Octopussy. And he played Sherlock Holmes in The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, which was written and directed by Gene Wilder, which I've never seen. Well, he also played Sherlock Holmes prior to that. Oh, did he? And I think that that's one of the reasons he... They cast him he, for that. came into that, yeah. That's funny. But this film, I think the ending kind of screws it up a lot because it overcomplicates things and it means that people were lying to each other when they didn't need to be. They could have just been scheming together this whole time, but instead they're all playing tricks on each other and Jillian is for no reason being left in the dark the whole time. Yeah, they didn't reinforce whatever the right 
solution was. Like, like would Jillian have been upset if Willis was like, I want to steal these diamonds and you're going to help me? No. She's a kleptomaniac. She's a kleptomaniac. She would have wanted to help you. There's no reason to leave her out of all this. Yeah, I mean, they leave it unclear as to what really happened or not what really happened but when everybody knew what yeah and because of that it's just really unsatisfying yeah you just needed to reinforce it so many of these movies that they're they're so focused with surprising you with the ending mm-hmm. that they don't care that it makes a lot of sense and they know that you're not going to go back and watch it again so they're just like just accept us that we tricked you and you didn't guess this ending but even even then, we still guessed it at a certain point. We were like, I feel like Willis is going to be, like, behind all of this. Like, he yeah. stole the diamonds. Like, <laughs> like somewhere at the, like, I, 20 I, minutes from the end. But I think yeah. we both said we that. We started like, to suspect that. Maybe yeah. that's what's happening. But well, and and Which is right. But but not for the reasons we thought. At least not in my opinion. My In my opinion, he did this on his own without Rhodes involved. And but th- he would have to use roads later yeah. for it to be a profitable theft. Yeah, so the the first time around, I was pretty sure that they were in it together. And then after sitting and thinking about it for a while, I came to the conclusion that I'm like, oh, no, he did this. And then, you know, Rhodes knew that he did this. So he's contacted him to say, I will fence your diamonds for you. Yeah, I didn't get there on my own. I needed you to explain that. Richard, up or down? That's going to be down. Uh, I I didn't think it was terrible, but there were a lot of little things that I was just bugging me, and I still do not understand what was going on with that cigarette case. I have two notes about it, like saying, <laughs> I still don't know what's happening. Like, keep talking about it, but I don't know what it means. Yeah, it's very weird. And just not really all that interesting. I, I think I'd be more interested in reading the book. Sure. And I tried to find it, too, before we did this, but I was not able to. Jess, up or down? It's a down for all the same reasons. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. Richard, where does this go on your letterboxed? Uh, it's going to be pretty low. I, I'm i going to put this just below Hollywood Nights and just above Holy Moses. Okay. Jess. Yes. Uh, I think I'm going slightly higher than Richard on that one. It's below the window's threshold also below hollywood nights but it's above don't go in the house i think for me this goes below the hollywood nights and just above nijinsky i think that's everything for this one if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd whereas i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through patreon.com slash vintagevideopodcast. On that note, here's a shout-out for PDX in London. Thanks for the kind words in your iTunes review. We hope you continue to enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Blues Brothers, which IMDb describes like so. Jake Blues, just released from prison, puts his old band together to save the Catholic home where he and his brother Elwood were raised. We leave you now with the trailer for Blues Brothers. You better get bright, pal. We got a show to do. Then we got to figure out some way to collect that gate money. Get it to the Cook County Assessor's Office as soon as they open in the morning. Joliet, Jake, and Elwood Blues. Two men.
with a mission and only 11 days. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. Our lady of blessed acceleration, don't fail me now. For me and the Lord, you got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. Space in this mall. How are you gonna raise five thousand dollars in eleven days without ripping off somebody? Dance to jailhouse rock. I remain celibate for you. Hit it. My heart's calculating. My true love will be waiting. If my estimations are correct, we should be very close to the Honorable Richard J. Daly Plaza. That's where they got that Picasso. Yep. guys come in here, black suits, black hats, one carrying a briefcase? Yeah, I just sent them down there. Thank you. John Belushi. Yo, how much for your wife? <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. After the gig, uh, maybe we could, like, uh, hang out together. James Brown. I heard the sound in my car. Cab Calloway. Ray Charles. You, you know depreciation, man. Carrie Fisher. I must now kill you and your brother. Aretha Franklin. You're living with me now, and you're not gonna go sliding around with your old white woman friends. Henry Gibson. He better pray the police get to him before we do. And the Blues Brothers Band. Let's go, boys. The Blues Brothers. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. <laughs> 